And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Reconciled invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconciled.com today. Also sponsored by www.smallbizacquisitions.com. Are you dreaming of acquiring your first U.S.-based small business but don't know where to start? Visit www.smallbizacquisitions.com exit and hit that apply now button to apply to this unique partnership program. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with Trish Higgins. She is a partner at Chinmark Holdings, and we're going to talk about holding companies, hiring people, finding the right people, the market in general. We're just going to have a good time today. Well, first of all, hi. Hello. Great to be <laughs> and, here. Yeah, thank you for being here. I, I almost jumped right into the first thing. It's like, tell me your background. How did you end up in mergers and acquisitions, in a holding company? Just kind of, how did you get your start in this space? Sure. So pretty unplanned. We started Trendmark in 2015. So Trendmark, we were a family-run business. So it was started by myself, my husband, and my brother-in-law. So mm-hmm. we are sort of a weird family business. And all three of us had a background in more traditional finance, sort of right out of college. Nothing that was explicitly related to M&A. Sometimes people hear finance and they think that we knew everything and like, My husband knew a lot about trading currency, but that's not particularly helpful in M&A. So we sort of had a finance-ish background more in the public market sector. And we all sort of in different ways felt like we wanted to do something a little bit different. It was sort of in our mid to late 20s, we looked around and we're like, is this really what we're going to do for the next 20 or 30 years? Like it just didn't feel like the right path for us. And so this idea of, hey, maybe we could buy a small business and there are these businesses out there that have been around for a long time. They have really interesting cash flows. They're too small to kind of sell to your cousin, but too big to sell to a traditional private equity firm. This kind of idea we heard in a couple different places and it just really resonated with us. So we didn't have this big grand plan. I mean, it started with just Googling how to buy a business and looking at all the normal websites like biz buy sell and all that stuff. And we were still all working in our jobs, sort of traditional jobs at the time. And as we spent our weekends and evenings on this idea, it became more and more interesting. And finally, 
we said, okay, this is actually what we want to do. And from the very beginning, we always said we want to buy multiple of these businesses and use the cash flow to buy more. And so it started off as a very sort of incremental organic idea. And when we bought our first business, it was the first time we'd ever done an acquisition ever. So really learning by doing a lot of learning <laughs> by doing. And then when we had our first company, we never managed anybody. We'd never done anything. So it was all pretty brand new. So we just stumbled into it because it sounded like a lot more fun to spend our time in this world of sort of small business M&A for the next 20 or 30 years than it did to sort of stay in a traditional finance job. That's really cool. And I liked it. You're humble enough to go, yeah, we didn't know everything, but we just figured it out. I have too many people like I, I, I kid around one of the guys like, I think I got this pretty nailed down. And I was like, look, dude, I've got a master's degree. What I always joke around is I got more college degrees than the average fool should have. I've got a master's degree in marketing. I've freaking taken two courses, like full-blown like courses on this. I've interviewed 160 people and I still consider myself a newbie. It's one of those things you don't know what you don't know until you start getting into it. There's just always something to learn. There's so many different strategies and things that comes up and different industries and industry nuances and stuff inside of this. That's why I joke. We were joking earlier. It's like the perfect business for a guy like me with ADD because it's always changing. There's always something new. <laughs> I love the, the humbleness of, yeah, we were in finance, but this is something new. And now we're working on it, figuring out now. How long ago was that? That was, we did our first acquisition in 2015. 2015. We're at eight years now. So you're eight years in, you've done multiple acquisitions now, right? What is the lessons learned? Like, what have you, I know you were talking about ahead of time, like kind of, you get a lot of questions about hold co or holding co strategies and business structures and stuff. I would imagine that your business structure now is not identical to what it was after the first purchase. So you, when we started, we just had a single entity LLC. I mean, it was not a holding company, which is all the hotness now. It was just one company. And then it was around when we had three companies and our idea had always been to be able to sort of share cash flows freely between the companies. And when you had multiple sort of LLCs, that becomes more difficult to do. And so then it was, okay, we have this problem. How do we fix it? We're going to formally sort of create a holding company structure. We converted to a C-Corp and we did that a couple of years later. So it wasn't this sort of, when we started, we still sort of have the, well, analysis we did. It was you buy one company that has cash flow, and then you use that cash flow to buy another company. And then you have cash flow for two companies and you can use it to buy the third and so on and so forth. And we wanted to buy companies we felt like we could own for the long term that were steady and enduring and somewhat boring. And that was the plan. And so that the core of it is still very much exactly what we do, but the sort of technical structure and all that stuff and sort of how it's being implemented and a lot of the, the things that make us Chenmark mm -hmm. as opposed to just another generic holding company, that was all learning by doing over the years. So I do get questions from people that are thinking about starting out and all they want to talk about is the sort of technical legal structure they should start out with. And I'm like, that's a valid thing to think about, but there's probably more important things to think about if you're interested in the structure. It's funny how you can change things along the way, like in other industries. I was in real estate and everything was like in the same LLC. And then I had one case where 
an attorney called me and said one of my tenants had fallen on the stairs and the guardrail was loose and it was icy out, blah, blah, blah. And they see that I own X number of properties and uh, they were trying to settle out. Luckily, I have a friend who's an attorney. He looked it up and found a car wreck that had happened. There was a police report that she's in a car wreck that exact same morning. Oh, interesting. Right? With an un right. uninsured motorist. So she made up a story is what I think. So I basically showed her attorney this and said, look, I've got an attorney too. I don't think it happened at the house. The guardrail was not loose. I went over and checked it. And uh, you didn't have a chance to loosen it up because I videoed me shaking it. I, I swear if I didn't, they probably would have went over and loosened it up or loosened it up or something. But uh, I was like, it's not. And I'll see you in court. Right? After that, everything went into trust. Like nobody could see that I own more than single property. It right. just, how do you do something different? Right. So when you were saying that, I don't know the whole coast structure. So you went to C Corp. I was thinking you're going to say like series LLCs or something else. I didn't know. There's a bunch of different things we do in the real estate space that might work on this, but you're saying the C Corp's models away and that allows you to have wholly owned subsidiaries underneath there. And then you can move cash flow from one to the other if you need to. Yep, absolutely. So everything, a subsidiary is an LLC, but there's sort of a holding company structure that's a C Corp that mm -hmm. owns everything. And then that allows us to freely move cash kick it back up to the holding company level so that the holding company is the entity that's buying the next acquisition as opposed to the original LLC. So we have some companies that just generate cash, they push it up to the holding company, and then that's what buys things. So far, yeah. it's fine for us. And it's always okay to tell me that's none of my business. So I'm going <laughs> to ask some questions here, right? Like, ah, we're not going that far. How many companies do you have now? Yeah, we've got 10 companies now. 10 companies. And General Bar Park, or what size are they? Are between... A million yeah. and two. I, I don't want to get too detailed like this. Some of this is none of my business, but I'm curious because it leads to where, like what you've built so far. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of revenue, we have a lot of different types of companies. So everywhere from some companies have more closer to three to four million of revenue and some are north of 15 million. Oh, cool. That's a good, yeah. that's a good range. And then uh, what industries are you in? Like currently, huh. Are they diverse or are they... Yes. So when I explain them, it seems like they're random, but just keep in mind that unifying sort of thread is that we want long-term enduring demand and sort of steady businesses that good operations give you a competitive advantage. Yeah. So our first acquisition was in commercial landscaping and snow removal. So we have okay. a number of those businesses. We have a lawn care and tick and mosquito control business. We have some tourism businesses, some in Maine, some down in Florida. We have an agricultural business, a food manufacturing business, paint distribution, and power equipment. You say power oh, equipment, like power lawn mowers, oh. stuff like that. Is that like renting, leasing, or selling, or what? They... Mostly selling, but some rentals as well. Okay. And yeah. then the other one you said, what was the distribution company? Oh, paint distribution paint stores. Yep. That's interesting. I grew up, my father was a painter. I grew up a painter's son and he worked during the day and I grew up working during the summers and probably, I guess, the first two years out of college before I ran off to the military and a paint factory making paint. And they're only in Oklahoma. I think they have an office. They used to have one in Little Rock and one in Denver called Anchor Paint, but okay. a local paint. And they made both latex and oil base. So I've been in a factory and poured pigment and yeah, pumped yeah. latex in there in a giant multi-thousand gallon giant mixer. <laughs> it's just one of those things that you don't think about, but then right. once it's sort of on your radar, you're like, mm -hmm. oh, there's a lot of people use paint. <laughs> I'm trying to think if you have any cross-sell or upsells across those. I guess the lawn care, the tick control, and the pest control companies, they have some cross-sell, upsell. When I 
got the pest control company before I moved away, I was looking at, okay, what would be the best plug-in companies to own around that? And I think I was thinking cleaning services, right? Nobody finds more bugs than the cleaning lady. And then handyman services, because one of the biggest ways to keep bugs in and out of a property is exclusion. So being able to change thresholds and stuff. So your criteria pretty much is it runs really well. It's got some longevity and the numbers are there. The finances are right. And I guess that there's a safety in being really diverse in that if you have a downturn in tourism for a while because of COVID, you've got other companies that can feed that if it's if that's what you want to do, right? Yeah. Right. So that kind of comes back to our backgrounds a little bit because we were more in the public markets and portfolio construction in that world is kind of what it's all about. And that was our background. And so we came into it with the mindset of, okay, businesses create, generate cash flows. The more uncorrelated those cash flows are, so the more diverse your portfolio, the more valuable that stream of cash flows is to your portfolio because it's yeah. more durable. So it's sort of the, in the finance or Marcus world, it's your short ratio. It's sort of how much return are you getting like per unit of risk essentially. And so mm -hmm. we definitely use that sort of framework when thinking about getting into the small business world where we said, okay, each individual small business has a lot of idiosyncratic risk. Like anything can happen. It's a crazy world, but a portfolio of small businesses can actually be incredibly durable. And so that was the theory and sort of what's been a guiding principle for us going as we've grown. And it was interesting to see it play out, especially in COVID was probably the biggest sort of test mm -hmm. where we certainly did have tourism businesses that were impacted, but food manufacturing did very well because we supply grocery stores and everybody was going to them because no one was going to restaurants. And then home services, landscaping and all that stuff did very well on the residential side because everyone was at home and looking at their backyard and saying, this needs to look mm -hmm. a lot nicer. And so then overall, we did okay. Mm -hmm. And that is... One thing we're very focused on building is something that is sort of resilient in any sort of economic environment. So we don't mm -hmm. necessarily need to be the top performer in any one given year. But our theory is that then if you look at our performance, hopefully over a 10 or 20 year time frame, our consistency will be sort of a hallmark of our of our performance. I love that, that you took that from your finance and portfolio building and applied it to this because a lot of people are like, I need to build things that have correlation and they're thinking more strategic. I can upsell, cross-sell. I can do that. But you're looking at it from a financial point of view. That's why a lot, I kind of smiled real big when you said it because it makes perfect sense knowing your background and your long-term vision. Almost probably a better way <laughs> that most people should probably look at it as opposed to, I want 15 lawn care places and 10 pest control and a couple of home cleaning services that way because they all work together and we can share clients and sell it like yeah you get one disruptor that moves into the space it'd be like owning all the mom and pop five and dime stores when walmart moves right. into town yeah yeah <laughs> it's it's sort of one of those things where i think we have tried to be very conservative with everything we've done mm -hmm. so we're always thinking about margin of safety if something goes wrong what's going to happen the big goal for us is to make it through whatever comes our way and so that has definitely led us away from saying, hey, we're just going to focus on one industry or one geography or pay higher multiples because we really like that type of company. Really focused on just 
being conservative and consistent, which from when I talk to small business owners that are looking to sell, there are some that want their the top price for sure. And we generally are never at that. But there are others who, if they care about sort of the long-term sort of viability about their company, kind of like what happens to the company after they sell, then we tend to be a good fit for them because we can point to saying, hey, you know what, the reason I'm not paying the highest price for your company is because if I do, then that generally implies I'm using a lot more debt to buy the business, which means maybe a better financial return for me if things work out. But if they don't, then it's just going to go into bankruptcy and people are going to get laid off. And I'm just making a lot of these types of bets and some of them work out and some of them won't. And there is a reason why we don't pay high multiples. And it's so that we can be good long-term sort of stewards of businesses, which is we have a different orientation, I think, than some other buyers. And so sometimes that resonates with sellers, sometimes it doesn't. Are they all geographically as diverse or are they all in one general area? Yes, they are all over the place. So we do have some concentration in New England because that's where we started. But we have two companies in Western Canada and we have a company down in Tennessee and down in Florida. And so we really look all over the place. Okay. So let's talk about, you've got them, they're all over the place. You guys are currently searching still? Or are you still looking for other acquisitions? Yeah. So we're still looking for other acquisitions because we're still sort of very focused on using the cash flows that the companies produce to buy more businesses. We're not really using the earnings from the business to fund a fancy lifestyle or anything like that. And right. so we're still very much in our goal is how do we increase the equity value of Chedmark and supporting the companies we own is the first priority. And then the second priority is buying more companies. So definitely still looking for acquisitions, pretty active. I think we're lucky in that I think it's easier to buy businesses once you own businesses, because I think that we can generally talk sort of the operator talk with small business owners that are looking to sell and not necessarily sort of painted as like a financial buyer in that way. So we meet a lot. We end up getting a fair amount of inbound, particularly from industries that we already have ownership in because people talk and we do outbound as well. I wouldn't say we're quite as aggressive with our sort of outbound efforts as maybe some others. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. It's just sort of the, we've been very hesitant to kind of build a permanent kind of outreach team or anything like that. And so I'd say our efforts reflect our investments. I've always thought it like I'm doing some acquisitions now, but like when I hit a certain point, there's some things that are key to a holding co I wouldn't mind owning, like a marketing agency, a accounting bookkeeping company to service all the businesses you run. And usually they can, if you pick them right, they can be really good businesses anyway. Did you guys do that? Is that part of your portfolio? You've got accounting or, or finance backgrounds, but uh, is that on the radar? Did you guys already do that? We have certainly looked at some from that angle, mm-hmm. um, but nothing's kind of worked out. We do have a team sort of in our headquarters that mm-hmm. focuses on, we call it the shared services team. So we do have some sort of centralized marketing technology, HR, and sort of financial resources for the companies to use. But we have never, yeah, you know, we've certainly looked at some, but it just hasn't worked okay. out. Okay. So yeah. you built it as opposed to buying it. I was just curious because I was like, that's one of the, in my vision, in my head, is a quick thing I'm building when it gets to certain ties. 
probably look at a marketing agency and I've got a marketing background, but marketing agency and probably outsource a lot of the CFO type of stuff until I hit to a point and then I can either buy one or bring one in house. So I was curious on your thing. Now you're using company capital to do these acquisitions and probably some that did you guys raise outside capital at the beginning? Yeah, well, when we started off, we used our own and some friends and family capital to get started. And then since then, we've been sort of internally funded. I will say that in 2015, I would not say that investor appetite was high for giving money to a husband, wife, brother, brother-in-law combo with no experience creating a hold co. Appetite was pretty low. So we Mm -hmm. were sort of forced to play with or to work with what we had. And it probably helped you because you don't have the outside. The reason I was asking that is I was going to ask if you have the outside pressure to liquidate things. In the space I'm in, which is online media holding company, I interviewed one of the top guys. And then within a few days, he actually sent me an email trying to sell me one of his holdings. He sent it to everybody, but I was on the list. And I was like, why would you sell this? He'd already turned it around. So it wouldn't be an acquisition for me because it's at its peak. He's really good at doing what he's doing. I didn't have any room for improvement. But I started thinking about it and I realized he raised money to do it. So now he's got investors who want to be, he made a commitment three, five year or whatever it was. And now he's got to sell a really good holding, something that's really profitable. He actually loves running or buy out his investors. And if he buys out his investors, he has to at least market to all of us and see what the price would be to buy it out. So you don't have that outside pressure because of the way you raised. Yeah, it's sort of that. I think Charlie Munger saying is sort of, you show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. And I feel like we're playing a totally different game, if you want to consider it a game, than other people in the M&A mm-hmm. space because we don't have a, a need to return capital to shareholders, which if you take money from people, you do need mm-hmm. to, like, it's their money. You're just being a steward of it. It, it changes your behavior and the decisions that need to be made. Because the decision to sell has happened before you even bought the company. Whereas for us, I don't know that we would never sell something. I, I can't really say that. You don't know what's going to Everything's for fit, sell at the right price. <laughs> it's not our intention. And when we are underwriting, we're not modeling an exit. We're just modeling mm-hmm. cash flow yields over a long period of time. And like that's what we're focused on. So we don't spend any time thinking about selling. That's just not what we do. But, you know, obviously if somebody came along and was going to pay some sort of stupid price for something, like we'd certainly talk about it. Like the answer might still be no, but our jobs to be capital allocators, you have to talk. Just declare it here and let's see if there's any billionaires out there (laughs) that try to prove you wrong. She said she'll never sell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Prove her listening, Lon. Write a billion dollar check. I bet she does. I bet she said to turn around and build something bigger and better. Sorry, I'm laughing about that. I do want to get into, we talked a little bit about the show. As a whole co, one of the best things that you have to perfect is having the right butts in the right seats, right? And knowing what a good operator looks like, especially when the owners want to retire out and leave. What does it take to run that type of company? What are, their, what are the industry knowledge base that the person has to have? And then what makes a good operator? And I've, we've done it wrong. Some friends and I have got into some businesses and picked the wrong guy to run it. And it hurt. We've done this for a while there. It was every person I put on the show is like, how do you hire a great operator? I'm curious on if your answer is any different than theirs. Uh-huh. So the question is, how do you hire a great operator? So I'll tell you how not to hire a great operator first, because we have done this and it 
is hard is that if you have a deal that's about to close and you don't have mm -hmm. anybody to run it, and so then you just go out looking for somebody who seems right. to fit the bill and you have time pressure and you can overlook a lot of red flags about, hey, maybe this person's not the right fit for this job, but if I don't hire them, I don't have anyone to run the company and I need, I want to close the deal and it'll be fine. And you can explain a lot of things away. And so I think that what we have found, because we certainly have made mistakes in this realm, I think it's hard to do. And we're certainly by no means perfect and we'll continue to make lots of mistakes. But the number one thing is, I think, giving ourselves time to get to know a person so that we can make sure that they align with us from first and foremost, like a values perspective, like do we want to operate and conduct ourselves in the same way? Like, do we trust each other? And then also then, okay, great. We have this sort of, you're one of us. Like we're both trying to achieve the same thing. Then also be able to evaluate the analytic capabilities. Like then this is a, a person that I trust in terms of treating people properly and that sort of stuff. But then do I also trust their analytical capabilities? You're right. Cause you can have really great people, but like that can't mm. do the job. So then it's values first. And then it's this person have this analytical capability. And it, from our perspective, the best way to evaluate that is to give ourselves time to know, to get to know people in lots of different sort of settings before they eventually kind of are in a full leadership role, but just kind of looking at someone's resume and then yeah. putting them in a spot, I think can lead to some pretty poor outcomes. It, by no I, uh, fault of those people, right? Just not the right fit. I like to joke around with me, there's no such thing as a bad employee. Some people would just be better off and played somewhere else. Yeah. And I used to joke around, uh, I've had the managerial responsibility at certain companies for over a hundred, almost 200 employees. And you bring in people and they just don't work. And I'd have to go to HR and say, Hey, I'm letting so-and-so go. Well, you've only been here for two weeks. What happened? And I was like, they interview well. That was my answer. I just walk out. It's like, they interviewed well. And then I'd leave because I explained it to her twice already. She knows what I meant by they interviewed well. They interviewed well, but when they got there, they just couldn't perform. And, and it right? is such a weird thing because, and we have started spending more and more time on our interview process to help this, but it is odd for a code I have not yet cracked is that people can interview well, but then you really know how they're going to do after they've worked for you for a week, week or two. Yeah. And you're like, Hey, is this person going to work out or not? Like you can kind of just tell in a way that you mm -hmm. can't tell when someone's interviewing. And I don't know how to recreate that in the interview process. Way I did it in the tech world was I'd bring them into the first outage we had, like when things broke, and especially if it was anything that, especially when it was something in their realm, I like, I just tagged one of the new guys and say, "Hey, come help me with this. We have an outage over here. I need extra hands," and just see how they perform under pressure. And when you're running a company as big as we were running, those things happen often, like little products would go down or whatever, and you were able to handle, see how somebody handles under pressure. I bet in a startup, you just acquire this, you put them in the seat. Now the problem is it's disruptive to the people there. You put an operator, someone who's the general manager, CEO, whatever title you want to give him temporarily until you know he's the right person. And then two weeks later, you got to let him go. That is just chaos mm -hmm. to people. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. And then it makes you seem like you don't know where you're doing, even though it, that's the I, right long-term decision. Yeah, I was, you said the same answer that everybody else did, by the way. So you win <laughs> the prize. There's no magic. There is no magic answer to yeah. this question. It's a tough thing to hire for. The other question I has is a hold co. 
do you have anybody, uh, you or your husband or your brother-in-law or anybody on staff that just could operate anything? And that's the guy that goes has to go run it until you get the great person? Yeah, I mean, definitely when it started, there was one situation where my brother-in-law had to, I think he's a fantastic operator, right? Like really mm -hmm. a great operator. And so he stepped in twice to different companies when we had sort of nobody to run it or we're looking into that. Um, and I've run a company for a couple of times myself and we, we didn't have anybody to run it. And part of our sort of evolution and our thinking about this is, okay, that he did that first and then I did it. And then it's like, okay, well, we can't keep buying companies because there's nobody to run them. It, like we can't run multiple companies at once for the long term. And so kind of goes back to that same thing with the converting to the C-Corp thing. It's like, okay, well, now we've come across a problem. How do we solve it? And we sort of, I'll give my husband credit on this because it's kind of his sort of project in sort of solving this was let's start a sort of a leadership, to, like a training program where people mm -hmm. come in and they work at first with us, maybe evaluating deals. And then they work in the operating businesses in some sort of senior leadership role, but not the CEO mm -hmm. role. And then that's the pool that we'll pick from to be the CEOs. So that's what we have now. And we have people in it's so far it's worked really well to both give people the sort of experience they need getting up to speed, but then also for us to sort of be able to say, hey, we've got this deal, but if no one in our leadership team is the right fit, then we're just not going to do it. So that program is, I think, three years old now, and it's grown over time, and it's been really good for us, and it's allowed us to grow. And I think without that, we wouldn't be the size that we are now, and we certainly wouldn't be able to kind of look for it. And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Are you an entrepreneur or business owner thinking about your exit strategy? Or maybe you've just landed a business through acquisition and the books just aren't the way you need them to be. Let me tell you about Reconciled, your dedicated partner for industry-leading virtual bookkeeping and accounting services. Reconciled pairs you with skilled professionals who empower you to grow your business and prepare for success, whether that's your exit or taking that new acquisition to top performance. Imagine having high-level financial management without expanding your team, from bookkeeping to CFO services, tax advisory, and even fully outsourced accounting, Reconciled has got you covered. They help you make the best business decisions, keeping your end goal in mind. And the best part? Reconciled understands acquisitions as they have acquired three accounting firms in the past three years, and their founder, Michael Lee, mentors others in searching for acquisition, raising capital, or trying to aggressively scale. Reconcile invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconcile.com today and let them get your books in order. Reconciled, making bookkeeping a breeze. That's Reconcile.com. Also sponsored by www.smallbizacquisitions.com. Are you dreaming of acquiring your first U.S.-based small business but don't know where to start? Well, we've got the perfect solution for you, Small Biz Acquisitions. Led by the nation's leading small business buyer, Robert Nance, Small Biz Acquisitions offers a partnership program that gives you the keys to your dream business in as little as 90 days. Imagine having expert one-on-one -on -one guidance 
personalized mentorship and even financial support from proof of funds to help with that daunting down payment. Yes, you heard that right. As a partner, they'll help you overcome the financial barriers so you can focus on what really matters, buying your first small business. If that's not enough, you'll have access to their team after the acquisition for continued support. So what are you waiting for? Take the first step towards small business ownership today. Visit www.smallbizacquisitions.com exit and hit that apply now button to apply to this unique partnership program. Remember, your dream business is a little as 90 days away and don't miss the golden opportunity. Robert only takes five new partners each month. Apply now. I love it. You leaned on your agricultural business, right? Instead of hiring operators, you grow them. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what is grow them right here? And there's some rapport that goes along with it. They've worked with you. They've worked beside you. You kind of see eye to eye. You can't get that from somebody on off the street, right? We've traveled together. We've Ooh. gone to retreats and holiday parties and dealt with good things and bad things. By the time someone becomes mm-hmm. a CEO... We know them as people. We typically know their families. Often we have people who join us and they're single. And by the time they come CEO, they're married and they have a kid. You get to know them. And I think that's really important. And we now say it's slower because you do have, and it's a big investment. I think, at least for me, I really dislike overhead. I kind of manage our overhead budget and I don't like overhead. And I think shifting our mindset around okay, this program is almost equivalent to if you're in a company and you're buying a new machine or something that's going to help you grow and work more efficiently. The leadership training program, is it's in the same bucket. It's an investment that we're making in people that maybe in the first six to 12 months doesn't pay off. But if we can bring someone in and train them up to be a good CEO, then if I take a slightly longer sort of perspective on it, then that investment will pay off time and time again. So I think shifting, at least for me, my mindset around this training is an investment, not necessarily just a cost on the P&L, for me was like at least emotionally like a pretty big hurdle to get over, but it's been a great investment for us to make. And it enables you to make acquisitions you may may or may not have made otherwise right are you to try to convince the owner to hang around for a little while longer and that type of stuff i like what you're doing there what about like knowing the right right butts in the right seats of people there so the ceo is one thing but a lot of times there's other shifts and other things that happen when the company is acquired there's employees that are just staying there because of loyalty to the owner they leave there's some turnover with every acquisition Mm -hmm. do you guys have people you lean on to get those positions filled fast or you just got really good at recruiting people or? <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's a mix. And so typically, if we're looking at an acquisition, we'll have the CEO come in and then one person who's in sort of stage two that's usually filling a hole. But then our kind of goal is to always have enough people in the pipeline so that if there is an unexpected departure, that mm-hmm. we can then go back, go to the pipeline and ask people to move into things. And so it's a fair amount. It's actually a pretty dynamic thing because mm-hmm. somebody hands in their resignation or you have a performance issue and you're like, okay, well, who can go be the whatever of this company? Mm-hmm. But I think so far, what we've really realized is before we had this program, if you have no talent bench, you have no bench depth. 
then either you make a lot of compromises you wouldn't otherwise make for the for people who aren't the right members for the team because you have no one to replace them. So you can people can get away with bad behavior or unreasonable compensation demands or all those things or just lack of performance because you're scared that you don't have a replacement. And so we found that having this pipeline gives us the ability to say, okay, hey, this person is not the right person. And we think at least we know this person better than a person we hire off the street. And so you can try to fill the hole there. I think it's pretty clear when it's not the right, like when it's a bad fit. I think that's very clear. And I've heard this a couple of different places. When it's a great fit, that's also pretty clear. I think the hardest cases is when it's sort of like a B minus, like it's kind of a fit, but it's not great. And then it's kind of, how do you deal with that is still something we struggle with, but I think we've gotten a lot better at when it's not the right fit. Cause I, you can just feel it when it's not the right Mm -hmm. fit. Then you act to your point, you act quickly and then you figure it out from there. I think a lot of people are scared about making those moves. I think we've realized that typically your gut is right. And if you make the move and you can usually figure out a solution that ends up being better. Yeah, I've noticed that almost every company has one or two guys who are just there because the owner's afraid to fire them because they know this or that, or it's weird loyalties, right? Their father worked here. Yeah, he's kind of a slack off that his dad retired from here and I owe it to him. In the back of my head, I'm like, I don't, <laughs> right? So we talked about what you guys look for, acquiring the companies. How do you find the best talent? What's some lesson learned? Like, what do you know now that you wish you'd have known day one on this process? For the talent specifically? No, just for anything in acquiring these businesses are diverse across that. You've done so much at this point. You got a lot of knowledge. You've learned some lessons. And there's got to be a few of them. I wish I'd have known this on day one. Sure. I mean, it's sort of like one of those, if I'd known everything, then... Might not have done it. (laughs) Yeah, well, might not have done it. But also, like, even though, like, the mistakes we've made have been painful, they've all resulted in learnings and creating something better. So the employee training program that we have now has been really great for us, but we couldn't have created that before we started. We had to have some really terrible experiences and make some bad decisions and struggle with it to be able to create it. So I'm a firm believer that you kind of have to go through the struggle a little bit to, to be able to create something unique. Otherwise, you could just get hold co off a shelf and it would all be the same. And yeah, that's not special. You got to have a few of those. I'll never let that happen again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But in terms of lessons learned, I think one on the M&A space going in and something in this world, and I don't have experience at big deals. I can't Mm. speak to that. But I get the impression that there's sort of a, a code of conduct. All your lawyers are generally experienced in deals of this size. And there's there's certain things that are agreed to be acceptable and not acceptable in sort of bigger M&A. Whereas in the small business world, you can really get anything. And you can get a seller who hires a trust and estate lawyer because it was his best friend in elementary school and he trusts them. And that person can know absolutely nothing about M&A, even though they're a lawyer. So I think especially coming from these sort of big, big finance stuff where there's mm-hmm. sort of a level of, I don't want to say professionalism, but a level of kind of like what's right, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And 
I went to business school and took a negotiations course. And mm -hmm. I think that one thing I've really learned is things are a lot different in the real world. And I like that. I think yeah. it makes life interesting. And even when these crazy things happen, like I think that's is just part of the experience. It makes my life more interesting. But sort of understanding that when you're negotiating a deal with somebody, they can have very emotional responses to things that may have nothing to do with the specifics in your deal, but just about the emotions of selling their business. Their advisors may be out of their depth and because they're out of their depth, act in irrational ways or erratic ways. And so I think that going into it, sort of knowing, especially with our first deal, kind of having a better sense of the psychology of the sellers, I think would have been helpful. And I think it's still really important to getting deals done in this space. I won't say how many times, but I can tell you, I can tell you for sure I've had to call the seller's attorney before and say, look, you're not helping this guy at all. You're actually hurting them. I'm not going to acquire this, mainly for other reasons, but you're not qualified to do what you're doing right here and you're hurting him, right? And it was, one of them was a divorce attorney. <laughs> this guy hired his divorce attorney. He really liked him, did a pretty good job in his divorce, protected his assets and stuff. Now hired him to help him sell his four and a half million dollar, four and a half million dollar EBITDA business. And the guy didn't even know, you could tell he Google in terms. He just didn't know any of the terms yeah. were and what should be on these. And he was like, throw in fits about things on the LOI that are just on every boilerplate LOI there is, right? Why is this non-binding? If you're going to you know, drag my client through this, it has to be, you have to commit to this. Like, you're the wrong guy for this. You're hurting him and you know it. Stop it. So I'm going to tell you things that my attorney or nobody else is willing to say to you because I'm not afraid of you. I don't know you. And I just call them up and say it. It's not uncommon for small business owners to lean into somebody they know, family member or friend of a family member or the guy who formed their LLC. I don't care if the guy's a business attorney, you form your LLC. If he doesn't have mergers and acquisitions experience, probably the wrong guy. Right. Right. And also, and I think part of it in the deal process, starting probably a little naive in that if somebody says something, I take it like at face value. And then I think now I think I've realized, especially in the deal process, it can be very emotional for people. And sometimes they don't even know what they want. So a simple question of, do you want to be involved in the business after the acquisition? It's not that they're the person's lying to you. It's just that they don't know, right? And, right. and they won't necessarily know that until after the transactions happened. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. Just all these things where... It's like, oh, well, the person said this, so therefore that's true. I think that I now have a better, much better appreciation for multiple layers, the emotional component of deals, all that sort of stuff that I certainly didn't have going in and I think would have been very helpful to know from the job. That's a good one. So on the emotional side, the seller's reluctance, and I, I've seen quite a few and heard a lot of people on the show tell me quite a few deals fell to close it at the final line because the seller comes up with something weird. And when you really boil it down to, I've called a couple of the sellers out because they, they said who they were and I called them up. They wouldn't go on camera, but I was like, why did you not really sell? And uh, nobody gives you the first answer the first time, but I'm trained in NLP and a bunch of other stuff, cognitive behavioral therapy and stuff. So mm -hmm. I dig in a little more than most people. So when they give you, they give you the answer, like, one of the guys, like, he wanted to take the sign I had, and that sign's been in my family over the bar, and that sign's been in my family, given to me by my great-grandpa and stuff like that. And I was like, really, the sign? And you just go silent. Like, you just reinforce the question. And if you do it two or three times, like, 
yeah, that sign was given to me by my grandpa, blah, blah. Like, cool, by your grandpa? And just let them tell the story. Eventually, he's like, I don't know. I guess the real story is I didn't know what I want to do next. I was just like, and they'll go plastic because they get it that you just, you're not buying it. I'm not saying anything rude or anything. I approach it differently. So I do the same thing when I'm on the phone with sellers. It's like, if we get this done or when we get this done, what are you going to do next? Going on vacation with my grandkids. 15 years straight, don't they have something they need to do? And they're like, no, just like, okay, what are you going to do after that? And we got to build a vision. We got to understand what they're going to do because otherwise they're not going to go to that end. If they don't know, there's a pretty good chance that, you know, you're going to have issues towards the end. Yeah. I think if, if I were going to chart out like that emotional volatility of the owners, it's sort of like straight, straight, straight. And as you get closer and closer to the close date, it like spikes. And then all these, yeah. you can think, oh, we're a week away from close and everything's done. And all we need to do is just transfer some funds and it'll all be good. And then like, that's a trap as far as like, mm -hmm. like something is going to happen in the next five days and the seller's going to come up with some, it's like, sometimes I think when these crazy last minute requests come up, it's because they're scared or they don't actually want to sell or whatever. And they're trying to sabotage the deal. It is. They don't know what to do next. And that's. They're thinking, oh my God, I've got to stop this. I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, so, or they realize that the money isn't what they thought it was, right? Yeah. $2 million sounds great until you realize you are making hundred K a year. You're 65 years old. When you're 75, even if you just paid yourself and maybe made a million dollars after tax, after the sale, they figured out the tax and everything else. 10 years from now, that's gone. Your cash flow is gone. Yeah, you're not working anymore, right. but are you going to adjust your lifestyle? Like, if they do the math, that's one of the questions mm -hmm. I ask. Have you talked to a financial advisor or will this transaction actually fund the future you're drawing for yourself have you talked to i'm not that guy but have you talked to somebody to make sure that works yeah and then i think yeah. they it is surprising to me sometimes we've had some situations where it is that very last minute and that's when they mm -hmm. talk to their tax advisor and their tax advisor would say like well either this structure that you agreed to doesn't work for you or mm -hmm. all these other things and it, it can really it can be a bit of a wild ride so i think for i think that Part of it, though, going into it, and this kind of the lessons learned is to have a bit more, you can expect these things, you can have some mm -hmm. more patience so that when you know they're going to happen, and so that when mm -hmm. they do happen, you don't react in this, can you believe this person is doing this? And it's like some sort of like, you don't take it personally. It's more of a like, it, I understand you're going through something right now, and let's yeah. see if we can work, work through it. You get to that point where you're like, oh, it's this again. <laughs> and you can just like, okay, I was kind of expecting something. So, yeah. yeah. What is the solution to, I mean, I'm no licensed therapist or anything, right? You can't be the coach and you can't be the therapist, number one, because you're the acquirer and that's, they're not going to have that. Rapport is one thing on a business transaction, but to get inside of their head, how do you walk them through that? How do you get, do you just give them time? So when you see these difficulties arising, do you advise like, maybe you should talk to a financial advisor or maybe you should talk to a therapist or... <laughs> yeah, I think one is the suggestions, but you know what? Mm -hmm. It's sort of one of these things where another learning is that we can both be talking about the same thing and have the same conversation and walk away with two completely different takeaways. Because I really yeah. think that especially when emotions are high, people hear what they want to hear. So mm -hmm. going back to someone and saying like, well, we had this conversation like and you said mm -hmm. this is not really like a useful thing to do. So I think that one thing we found is that as you get closer to the close date is talking about it in the past tense and talking about the, not like if the deal closes, but, but when the deal's closed or like, okay, well, the deal's done and now we're just doing like the administrative stuff. So trying to yeah. 
talk about it and the conversations, have them sort of psychologically commit to this. We have already agreed to everything. This is purely administrative to take a the right. sort of like, I think signing documents and like there's a lot of like culture around like the deal signing and it becomes very significant trying to like lessen that. So we've done right. things like we're going to have the closing dinner before we even like technically close, like to psychologically move it, I think can be helpful. But then sometimes it's not like that's a magic thing. Um, right. Sometimes you do just have to say, listen, like this isn't going to work for us. And I think that the biggest, I think, point of leverage for us at this stage that we didn't have when we started was any given deal, if it doesn't work out, like that's fine for me, right? Like if we don't do right. it, like, okay, I may be out legal fees, which is annoying, but we move on. Whereas mm -hmm. when we started, you don't have a deal and you're like right at the beginning. I think that you can push things and maybe accept more than you should. And most of the time what we found is saying like, hey, like if you're making these claims we don't find them to be reasonable. They're not going to work for us. We're happy to do the deal we already agreed to do. And when you want to do that, let us know. And then you just walk away. And I think that I've, a lot of owners are sometimes like surprised by like, oh, what do you mean you're walking away? Like, yeah. So sometimes I've done that in the real estate world a lot. Like the offer is the offer. It's on the table if you ever decide to come back to it. Yeah. Unless the market changes drastically, if you decide six months from now, my offer is great pretty good chance i'll still buy your house i think you can do the same thing in business i like look we structured a deal and this is what makes sense to us unless something fundamentally changes in the business just know that when you're ready that this deal's there and that's what we do and sometimes often it'll be listen if you think you can get a higher price or these terms or whatever for somebody else then like you should do that right like that's going to be a better fit for you you're going to be happier so like go and explore that and if it doesn't work then like we're not going anywhere. Like, that's fine. And I think a learning is too, is not taking that personally, knowing that person is going through their own situation with selling their business. They may have a lot of their own sort of self-worth and confidence tied up in the business, whatever else is going on and not burning that bridge. Cause we do have people who come back to us because I think we're better at handling that situation now. Whereas when we first started, I think we'd probably burn some bridges because we'd just be like, you know, we right. can't treat people like this kind of thing. I like looking at people's background too. There was a guy, unfortunately, he, I couldn't go very far with him because he got himself in some trouble and he had a bad rep in the industry. But I realized by looking at his background, his LinkedIn and all his looking at the websites and stuff that were out there, he had been building and selling companies. This is like his third one. And then to find out why, this is also his third marriage. So he basically builds a company with a spouse and then yeah. gets divorced and has to sell it. But that wasn't the reason I didn't look further into the one he was in. But the guy's like, man, you're one of the nicest people I've talked to about acquiring business. And it's like, look, I want to keep you as a friend. Whether I buy your business or not, I want to keep you as a friend. Why? Because you built this one and you sold, you're selling it to me. I can see you've already sold two more five years from now when you're done with the next one you build. I want you to call me up. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Because you might, you know, might be interested still. So there are people who are really good at taking something from an idea, taking it to revenue, find a product market fit, and then they kind of just... That's where they mm -hmm. focus and you want those people keeping great rapport with them is awesome. But I can see where you're like, there are certain times where you're just like, look, the deal is a deal. We got to either take it or walk. How many of your operators stay? I mean, the business owner just stays around it either part-time or full-time after. Is that common or? Very, very few, very few. Very Most few. are looking to leave and retire. And we've just found that tends to work out better. Often people will stay on for some sort of transition phase or consulting or 
some sort of limited role, but even usually when somebody has a limited role, they kind of fade away. But we're also working typically with owners that are in their 60s or 70s, and that's their stage of life. So I've always had concerns about, like I've had, we had one where the guy was younger and he's like, look, I want to hang around maybe 15, 20 hours a week max. I'm doing professional golf on the side and I want to take more time into that. And I was like, problem I see with that is, is it's not theirs anymore, right? right? And they're still going to want to walk around and control it and tell people to do things like it is. And there were some clear things he was doing, like paying people out of the cash register. Mm -hmm. It was a fairly profitable, but they did detailing window. We did a bunch of stuff. We looked at a couple of these. We were actually looking at window tinting. The the cash flow on them is pretty good sometimes. If you ever look into Mm -hmm. those places that do window tinting for auto dealerships and stuff, and then they do uh, window tinting, car detailing, and like uh, stereo upgrades and installs, but their primary customer base are the local dealerships. They usually make really good cash. Mm -hmm. Like this guy was doing in three to $5 million at one point, but I've seen them doing six or 7 million with a team of 20 people, 25. So pretty good revenue for the number of people. But if that place was going from sun up to 10 o'clock at night, I mean, it was a factory. They were cranking stuff out. They were paying people. And one guy said, well, I have 13 employees. And I was like, I've been here three times. I've seen 17 once, 18 another. Oh, we have some guys in here that contract labor. They just come in when we're really busy. I said, cool. Why are they not on your books or on your payroll? Or you just pay them out of the cash register at the end of every day. It's like, how do you track that? Yeah. He goes, what do you mean track it? I started digging into his finances a little bit and noticed that he didn't itemize anything. You couldn't tell the window tinting jobs from the detailing job. Basically, there was so much cash at the end of the drawer at the end of the day. Yeah. And they just put that in a cash. And I was like, okay. So <laughs> they have no idea, right? So there's just like, so you can't have those guys hang around because you don't want that to happen. No, no. they got to change right. their behavior. So I think it's a very special person who can be in charge and then not be in charge, but still stay and be productive. Yeah, that's why I asked the question. It's like, you, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over right. you. That's the reason I asked the question. It's like, a lot of times you just don't want them to stay, right? You Like, they're going to do more disruption than they are benefit, but you want them, like, and I don't know, I'm nowhere near where you're at right now, but I, I think I want people to be accessible by phone if I need you. <laughs> okay, I've got a flyer. Can you help me put it out? But not be in the day-to-day operations and in front of the employees. Yeah, I think you want to have, I mean, ideally we have, a good relationship. They're happy with what's going on in the company. We can call them for advice because they know things we don't know. But then ultimately, I think it can be confusing for everybody else in the company. If It's kind of like, well, this used to be my boss and they're telling me to do something, but there's this other person. And I think it can be make it much more difficult, which is why we kind of prefer the kind of, yes, I intend to retire. I am just sort of consulting or kind of phasing out. Because it's always odd to me if somebody says like, oh, I want to sell my business, but I want to stay in a full-time role for the long term. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. why do you want to sell? If you think there's a ton of growth here and a ton of opportunity, why would you want to share it with someone else? And I think sometimes view financial buyers as like having this like magic, like book of business secrets or something that can help them <laughs> achieve things they can't on their own. And it's just not true. Like, Anything we can do, anybody else can do. Short of running out and buying other companies and bolting them into them, right? I mean, they'd have to learn a little bit to do that, and you guys could do that. You can buy mm-hmm. a, a mid-player in a market of landscaping and go buy three or four small players. Yeah. One of the things in the landscaping business, and I know somebody that used to own one, 
he would buy accounts up from people that were trying to get out of it. So he just watched Craigslist constantly. He usually could buy accounts at 1X and he would have them walk around and introduce them mm -hmm. and he'd lose some of them, but it, it was a real, it was the best marketing thing he'd ever found. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our landscapes, yeah. our local sort of services businesses do pretty into that yeah. sort of thing. Cool. So uh, what can myself or the audience do for you? You guys have a need right now. You're looking to acquire a particular type of thing. You're looking for leadership people to get into this training program. This is your chance to do a call out. Tell the audience one way we can help you out. Sure. So I'll go with two if that's okay, but always looking for new deals so that you can always send them our way. And then if always looking for operators. So if people are interested in our leadership development program, would love to connect with you as well because we can't buy businesses unless we have good people to run them. That would be a great thing. I just posted today on Twitter. It's funny. It's like not everybody should be buying businesses. Most of you guys don't have, don't have the operator experience to be a operator. And if you tell me you're going to hire an operator, most of you don't have the experience to, to be the chairman of the board either. How many leaders have you coached, right? If you're out there and you, you think you're wanting to do this, but you're not quite ready, this is a perfect opportunity for you. I think it would be a beautiful thing for you, somebody to do to step in and learn that skill set, work for you guys for as long as it may, makes sense for both parties. And then later on in life, if they want to acquire one of their own, now they've got their, now they're an operator, right? And hopefully you like so, us so much, you'll never want to leave. That, <laughs> yeah. You might move back up to corporate and help do that and do the next acquisition or exactly. do the next one and do the next one. So I really appreciate you today. So you just said, if somebody's looking to sell, what's your buying criteria? I know people want 10 year old, a million dollar EBITDA and above. They have a criteria. Yeah. At least a million of earnings, sort mm -hmm. of our threshold and mm -hmm. uh, with a history of profitability and a company that's been around for, has a history and mm -hmm. a track record. That's pretty much it. Track record, million dollars plus in revenue and a good history and you're profitable, right? You're profitable and not on the decline. You're not hurting. Okay. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you for your time today and I learned a lot. It was fun. And I think we can call that a show. Awesome. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me on. Hang out for a second. Yep. That's the show, guys. I don't want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace we have partnered with has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now